If you have a Bible, our passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're going to look at the entire chapter, verse 1 to 20. Uh, The title of the message tonight is Wisdom and Folly. As I read uh, some of the books that I have in my office that I'm referencing in this study, this was one of those passages. I've mentioned several of these passages to you, but this was one of those passages that a lot of commentators just completely skip. They just completely pretend like these verses uh, are not in Ecclesiastes. And there are a couple of books that I'm using that as they talked about Ecclesiastes 10, uh, said that these verses are only exclusively, specifically for leaders. And really what they were thinking is political leaders. Uh, They think the whole chapter has a slant towards those in governmental, civic-type positions of leadership. So I've told you, uh, we're not skipping anything in Ecclesiastes. We're going through the entire book. And I don't think that this book or this chapter only applies to leaders. I think there's plenty of application and plenty of wisdom for all of us, whether you're a civil magistrate of some sort or you're not. And so we'll start with a quote from Sidney Greedness. Uh, He says, of all the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and preach. And I'll just stop right there. Does that sound familiar yet in Ecclesiastes? It's like every passage you come to, some author, some commentator says, this is the hardest passage. This is the trickiest passage. This is the most difficult passage. There are a lot of difficult passages in Ecclesiastes. Greediness says, it's difficult Hard to interpret, hard to preach, but that should not stop preachers who believe that, quote, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, quoting 2 Timothy 3.16, which we mentioned just this last Sunday. Uh, This preaching text, chapter 10, it teaches, it reproves, it corrects, it trains in righteousness by urging us not to be foolish, but to use wisdom not only in politics, but also in our daily lives, still, it is a difficult text. And the difficulty in the text is not so much that any one verse is just impossible to sort out. The challenge is, what do you say when you step back from this preaching text, Ecclesiastes 10, what do you say in terms of a big idea or an overarching theme for the entire book? Because there are ideas and pieces of wisdom and uh, nuggets of insight that are all over the map. How do you bring those all under one umbrella? And here's my attempt to do that. Wisdom will not erase sin or the effects of the fall. Wisdom will not erase sin or the effects of the fall, but the people of God desperately need wisdom in their brief lives under the sun. So I'm taking that big idea not from any one verse in the passage and saying this is like the key verse, the one verse that everything else revolves around. I'm taking that big idea from looking at this collection of verses in the context of Ecclesiastes and in the context of the Bible. Our lives are brief. That's this word. It's in the big idea in italics, hebel. Our lives are brief. They're smoke, they're a mist, they're a vapor, they're here, and then they're gone. Our lives under the sun are exceedingly short. That doesn't mean they're meaningless. It just means that they're brief. 
And it doesn't mean that you can go through life as a fool with no consequence. Ecclesiastes is saying two things to you at the same time that Americans sometimes struggle with. Number one, your life is really short. And number two, as much life as God gives you, you ought to try to be a wise person. Don't just live for the moment. Don't just live for immediate pleasure. Don't just live to satisfy any desire that you have. Your life is short. You ought to try to be a wise person. But then when we step back, we need to remember that wisdom is not going to erase human sin. And it's not going to remove the consequences of human sin, the effects of the fall. So let's read the passage. And then we'll break it into a lot of individual points. We won't talk about any of them very long. We'll try to move quickly. And then we'll think in terms of application. So you follow along. This is the Word of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt... And one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he doesn't know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength. And not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice. Or some winged creature will tell the matter. Father, tonight we're grateful for the book of Ecclesiastes and we pray that you would give us ears to hear the wisdom of this passage, give us hearts that desire wisdom over folly as we see these two things compared and contrasted and 
discussed. Father, we pray that we would be wise people, and ultimately, uh, we know that all of the wisdom in the world uh, cannot save us from our sins. Uh, only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that, and we're thankful for the folly of the gospel and the weakness of the gospel, and that through this folly and through this weakness, uh, it is your desire and it's your joy to save sinners like us. We've read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 already tonight. Uh, we thank you that you are glorified and you get the credit in salvation, not us, not our wisdom, not our power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 12-point sermon. You ready? Number one, a little folly, a small amount of folly can have a big impact. That's verse number one. A few dead flies ruin the expensive perfume. In other words, a, a small amount of foolishness has the ability to outweigh lots and lots of wisdom. You know this if you just think about some specific examples in your own life and you say, maybe for, for days or for weeks or for months you practiced wisdom in a certain area of your life and then one moment of folly can just erase all of that and bring consequences that you don't enjoy. I'll put a few sayings up on the screen. There's one at the bottom. The, uh, the way we say it today usually is one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Uh, the saying actually goes back to the Middle Ages, and in the Middle Ages, the saying was, a rotten apple quickly infects its neighbor. Uh, in the 1700s, a guy named Benjamin Franklin wrote some anecdotes in the Farmer's Almanac, and Ben Franklin wrote the saying down like this, the rotten apple spoils his companion, and today we say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. This is something that we talked about last week. You see it in this verse about dead flies and the perfumer's ointment. It's the idea that in a person's life, a little bit of foolishness and sin can have an outsized impact, an outsized consequence on your life. What's true for an individual person's life is also true for a family. One person in a family with just a little bit of folly can bring disastrous consequences to the entire family. What's true for an individual in a family is true for a church. A small amount of folly by just one person or a few people can have an outsized impact on a church of otherwise wise, righteous people. And what's true for an individual and a family in a church is also true for a nation. A few bad apples, we might say, can spoil the whole bunch. A little bit of folly can outweigh much good. This is not necessarily good news for you or our church or your family or our nation it's just truth, and the preacher is setting it before you for your consideration. It's to be a warning to you to think, this may seem like a small amount of folly. I may think that I can control the consequences of it. I may think that this won't spread and impact or affect any other people, but a little bit of folly can have a big impact. Number two, wisdom and folly will change the trajectory of a life. I would love to tell you that verse 2 is political advice for the United States of America in the 21st century, and some going to the right and some going to the left. 
you understand the preacher had none of that in mind when he wrote this? He's not trying to make a political point about red and blue in the United States of America. He's simply saying wisdom will take you one way and folly will take you a different way. And immediately that first step towards wisdom or folly may look like a very small difference in trajectory. But spread out over a year or a life or a generation, the trajectory gets further and further and further away in going to the left or going to the right. One of my favorite economists is a man named Thomas Sowell. I'd never heard of Thomas Sowell until after I moved here. One of our church members turned me on to him, a Stanford economist, absolutely brilliant. And since I've been turned on to him, I bought several of his books and read his books. He has a book called Discrimination and Disparities. And in the book, he simply makes the point that there are disparities, or we might say inequalities, between human beings. Some have more, some have less. Some are taller, some are shorter. Some are better at certain things, some are not as good at those things. There are disparities. That's the term he uses in the book. And the argument that he makes in the book, I think very convincingly, is that not all of these disparities are the result of discrimination. So you live in a time where many people look at disparities or inequality, and they say if there is not equality or equity in outcome, For every single person, it must be the result of some sort of discrimination or persecution or oppression. And Saul just makes the case very convincingly, that's nonsense. And he observes, some nations have lots of oil deposits. Some don't. It's just a matter of geology. West Texas has oil deposits. Other parts of Texas don't have as many. It's not because somebody's wicked way back to put that oil there. It's just the way that it is. Some nations have lots of natural safe harbors where they can have ships coming and going. Some don't. Some nations don't have any harbors. They're completely landlocked. It's just the way that it is. He makes all of these comparisons with nations, and then he brings it down to the individual level. And he says, what's true for nations is true for individuals. There are disparities between individuals. And he notes that many times there are disparities between siblings who grew up in the same house with the same parents and the same education and the same opportunities and everything the same. And yet they end up later in life moving in completely different directions. Some of you are nodding your head. You're saying yes. Some of you have had the experience of going to a wedding or a funeral and looking at some of your family members and thinking to yourself, I'll say what you were thinking. How in the world am I related to you? (laughs) And I would just also add to that, if that thought has never crossed your mind at a wedding or a funeral, it's because your family is thinking that about you. They're looking at you saying, how in the world are we related to you? How is that possible? Well, there's lots of variables in that. Saul makes the case very convincingly from an economic standpoint. And the preacher reminds us, one of the factors, not the only, not the only factor, but one of the factors that puts people on a different trajectory in life, even people who grew up in the same house with the same parents and the same experience as children, is wisdom and folly. 
and what seems like a small difference in, let's just say, the 10th grade might become a bigger difference by the time you're in your mid-20s. And then an even bigger difference by the time you're in your 40s. And then a dramatically, remarkably, incredibly huge difference by the time you're two generations down the line. So wisdom and folly will change the trajectory of a life. Number three, fools tend to reveal their folly. That's the nature of fools. If you're a wise person, this can work to your advantage. Most of us are not very good listeners, but if you can learn to be a good listener, it really won't take long to figure out who is a fool and who's not because fools tend to tell you that they're fools if you'll just listen to it. And that's what the preacher talks about here in verse 3. He says, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Just listen, and the fool will let you know just how foolish he is. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. This is a hopeful verse for some of us, isn't it? You may think to yourself as you go through Ecclesiastes, this is, this is making my brain hurt. I don't understand this. I can't process all of this. I don't understand it. All you have to do is be a quiet person. When people say things, just sort of go, hmm. 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 And then the word will get out at our church. Hey, do you know so-and-so? They're really smart. They're really intelligent. You don't have to say anything. You just have to say nothing. But the fool is not good at that, and fools tend to reveal their folly. Number four, calmness is the mark of a wise person. Calmness is the mark of a wise person. If you are always angry and constantly irritated and always mad, uh, you can do the American thing and say, well, look, I just have a quick temper and I just don't suffer fools very well. And you can describe it however you want to describe it. What the preacher would say is, you're a fool. Calmness is the mark of a wise person. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Calmness, as the preacher describes it, is built on a trust in the sovereignty and the providence of God. The idea that you will not find yourself in any circumstance that is outside of God's control. And I've been reading a book this last week. It's a book by a a guy named Stephen Sharnock. Uh, He lived in the 1600s. He was an English Puritan. And he wrote a book called Divine Providence. Uh, And I've been reading this book. And I just want to read to you one paragraph as he's talking about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. He says this. There is not a single molecule in all the universe that lies outside God's control. The Lord knows and directs all creation from the mightiest angel to the smallest earthworm. And in His goodness and wisdom, God exerts His authority over every single act, large and small, good and evil. He has woven all creation into a salvation story That culminates in the cross. This is divine providence. 
When you understand what the Bible says about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God over all things, your life is going to be marked by a calmness and an understanding that whatever you're facing in life, God is not up in heaven wringing His hands worried and anxious, but He's in complete control. And the preacher says calmness is the mark of a wise person. Number five. Sometimes folly is rewarded in our world. Again, not the best of news, but it's real and it's true and you need to know it. This is verse 5 and 6 and 7. He describes an evil that he's seen under the sun. Folly is in the high places and the rich sit in a low place and they're slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And what the preacher is simply telling us is sometimes... Foolish people end up in power. This is hard for you to believe as Americans. But sometimes foolish people win elections. Sometimes foolish people get appointments. Not like dates, meetings, but like appointments to positions. Sometimes foolish people run things that they ought not to be running. Everything's upside down. Now let me give you a warning. Give you a warning because I know some of you. Ecclesiastes is not saying that everyone who is involved in politics, in government, everyone in a position of authority is an idiot. That's not what Ecclesiastes is saying. So don't leave and say, hey, we had Bible study last night. Ecclesiastes says everybody who's in government is a fool, is an idiot. And I think that's right. No, that's not what Ecclesiastes is saying. Ecclesiastes is saying many times this happens. And you need to not be caught off guard by it. You need to not be distraught over it. But don't be the kind of person that just automatically assumes everyone in leadership, everyone who makes a decision is a complete fool, a complete idiot. Our world, because of social media, is filled with people who want to sit on the sidelines and nitpick and critique every single decision that every person makes. And it's unbecoming of the people of God to be like that. It's ridiculous for us to just nitpick people from the sideline. Now, Ecclesiastes is telling us something we need to know. Sometimes folly is rewarded in our world, and sometimes folly is established in high places. Number six, work requires risk, and work is made easier with wisdom and patience. So we're talking about work in verse 8, 9, 10, 11. We need to know about work. We need to have wisdom about work. All work requires some measure of risk. And your work can be easier if you're a wise person and if you're a patient person. So just look what he says in verse 8. He says, if your job is digging a pit, there is a hazard that you could fall into that pit. So you need to be aware of that. Uh, if your job is tearing down a wall, he says, you could be bit by a serpent. Now, some of you think the pit makes sense. I don't quite understand the wall and the serpent. Let me just tell you, this is not hypothetical. This is very, very real. It's very personal to me. Several years ago, a man in our church named Jason Westfall was selling his house in West Odessa. Part of the agreement on the sale that there's this old building behind his house on his property that needed to be tore down. 
He couldn't find people to hire to come tear it down, so he called some of his friends, suckers. And he said, hey, can you come help me tear this building down? And we thought, like, I don't know what I pictured in my head. I just pictured a little shed. I thought we might, like, push it and it would just fall over or something. It was an actual, like, building, and we started to tear this thing down. And at one point in the demolition, I had a sledgehammer, and there was one last stud holding up part of the wall and part of the ceiling, working right next to me, Hunter Siegler, who was in my office today. And I took this sledgehammer, and I hit that stud, and the stud went flying, and the roof, the ceiling fell down, and this was no lie, six inches from my face. Now here's the thing, you're looking at that photo. This is my amateur photography with a cell phone. If the great Steve Isonina had taken this photo, you would be able to see that this was an anaconda of a snake. It was huge. It was massive. And it was staring right at me about this far away. Hunter Siegler ran out of the room screaming and crying, tears coming down his face. It was pathetic. I held my ground and took my phone out and took a picture while Hunter ran away screaming. And so I'm just telling you that Ecclesiastes, I should have read Ecclesiastes before I went to Jason Westfall's house because it says, it says, a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So you just need to file that away. Work requires risk. If you're quarrying stones, you could get hurt. It's a dangerous job. If you're splitting logs, there's danger involved in that. There's danger involved in work. And then there's a couple of statements in verse 10 and 11 about wisdom. Your work doesn't have to be as hard as possible. It could be easier. It's not going to be easy, but it could be easier. And he gives us the example of if you're splitting the logs, why don't you use a sharp axe? So if you use a dull axe, you're going to have to use more force. You're going to get tired quicker. Why don't you use some wisdom in this scenario? And then he gives us this illustration about snake charming, which is foreign to us as Americans, but it's common in an ancient Eastern culture. And he just says, look, if the snake bites you before you charm it, be patient. Be patient. When you work, understand that risk is involved, and be wise, and be patient. Number seven. Our words often reveal our wisdom or our folly. You know, we've sort of talked about this already and fools revealing their folly. This is just the same idea communicated differently. Verse 12, 13, 14. Uh, verse 12, he talks about the words of a wise man, the lips of a fool, the beginning of the words, the end of his talk, multiplying words. All this stuff has us thinking about what comes out of our mouths. Jesus said that what comes out of your mouth is an overflow of your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. If it comes out of your mouth, it came from your heart. It's the illustration of a water bottle. And you take a water bottle, Ozarka, you take the lid off, you shake it, what comes out? Water, because that's what's in it. If I were to take this bottle, take the lid off, shake it, you wouldn't expect Coke to fall on the ground. 
you would expect water to fall on the ground. Jesus says the same thing with your heart. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. When it comes out of your mouth, it came from your heart. Our words reveal our hearts. They reveal our wisdom or our folly. Words often come back to bite us. He talks about that in verse 12b, the lips of a fool consume him. So we often reveal our wisdom or our folly through our words. Number eight, folly is exhausting. It's exhausting. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him. He doesn't know the way to the city. The Bible says that God, if you read the book of Proverbs, the Bible says that God has built wisdom into the world. There's a moral fabric to the universe that's inescapable. You cannot get away from it. You can come up with all sorts of worldviews and ideas and theories and isms and lifestyle choices and all the rest, but you cannot get away from the moral fabric, the moral reality that God has built into the world. And folly, the preacher is telling us, is exhausting. Because when you live like a fool, it's like trying to swim against the current. It's like trying to cut against the grain. It's like banging your head against the proverbial wall. Uh, To use a New Testament metaphor, it's like kicking against the goads. You're just not going with the way that God designed life to work. And it's exhausting. And if you've ever talked to people who are wrapped up and caught up in their folly, they're often just perplexed and exhausted and they just hate the consequences of everything that they're dealing with and they don't know how to get out of it. And they just don't quite understand why all of these things are happening to them. I don't know what's going on. Why is all of this happening to me? And many times you just want to say to those people, folly is exhausting. It will exhaust you. It will wear you out. Preacher tells us, Ecclesiastes 10, 15. Number nine, folly in government affects the entire nation. Verse 16 and verse 17 are the two verses that we're looking at here. 16 and 17. Woe to you when your king is a child and they feast in the morning. And he explains that a little bit when he gets over to uh, the end of verse 17 and he talks about the difference in feasting for strength and feasting for drunkenness. So woe to you when your king is a child, or we could even say childish, foolish, and living for self-indulgence, living for pleasure, that has a consequence on the whole nation. And then it says, happy are you, or blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, and they feast not for drunkenness, but for strength. Corey and I preached not that long ago, on the kings of the Old Testament. And we talked about the fact with each and every one of them, when they were good, wise, righteous king, there was benefit to the nation. When they were foolish, wicked, sinful kings, there was a consequence for the nation. This is why the New Testament calls you to pray for your leaders. To pray for them. 
not to go around slandering them, even if they're foolish, but to pray for them. Because the Bible recognizes Old Testament and New Testament, then when rulers are good and godly, that's a benefit to a nation. And when they're bad and foolish and wicked, they're consequences for a nation. You ought to pray for them. There's a, a lot of talk these days about how Christians ought to think about voting, how Christians ought to think about politics, how Christians ought to think about all sorts of things. And there's a weird subset within the Christian world of people saying that Christians should basically stay out of it all and don't worry about it all and you shouldn't necessarily vote for people who line up with these values or that values and you should just sort of, it's just odd advice. I don't quite understand it and I think a more biblical approach would be to say no, the people that we vote on we have a unique situation. It's different than the Old Testament. It's different than the New Testament. We don't live under an empire where you have the government you have. We're blessed to live in a place where we actually get to vote for people. And we ought to use our brains and be wise and think, which is the better alternative? Which one lines up more closely with wisdom and with righteousness? Now, I understand that many times you look at your choices, usually you have two, and you think, well, they're both bad choices. They don't, either of them seem to be great. And at times you have to say, well, which one seems worse? But you have to be wise in this, and I don't think you ought to let anybody shame you into saying, well, you're just trying to impose Christianity on a nation because you're voting a certain way. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that's what any of us are really trying to do. I think we're just being honest hopefully, and wise in saying, no, the people we put into office actually have an impact on this nation. They have an impact on us. They have an impact on our children, and we need to be wise about that. Folly in government affects the entire nation. On the heels of that, number 10, laziness has consequences. Laziness has consequences. The example in Ecclesiastes 10 is your roof. If you are slothful, your roof roof is going to fall in, and if you're indolent, then your house is going to leak. So we could come up with all sorts of other examples. We could say if you don't study for the big test, you're probably going to fail. You're lazy. We could say if you don't prepare for the big meeting, you're probably going to look goofy in front of your boss. It's not going to reflect well on you. We've just been watching basketball games as a nation for the last couple months. We could say, in practice, if you don't practice your free throws, you're probably not going to make them at the end of a game when you need to. You have to put in the work in order to get the desired outcome. I had lunch this week with uh, our staff and Alan Ruley, the husband of Jennifer. He came and he met us for lunch, and he sat by me. Alan's a tech at Sewell Ford, and we were talking about the shop and work. And I said, well, do you have any broken cars in the shop? And he said, yeah, we have a few. He said, I'm working on a car this morning that hasn't had an oil change in 40,000 miles. They were just too busy to bring it in or lazy. Guess what? It doesn't run very good. So laziness has consequences. Laziness has consequences. Remember what I just said about God building wisdom into the universe, into the world, and we live in a, a morally charged universe and you can't get away from that 
the consequences for laziness and folly are built into the world by God, not necessarily as a punishment, but as a corrective and as a disciplinary measure so that we would not be foolish. They're intended to help us understand what wisdom would be in our lives. Now let's tie 10 back to 9. Laziness has consequences, folly in government affects the entire nation. We'll just try some synthesis here. God has designed the world so that there are consequences for a lazy person. When a government decides that there should be no consequences for lazy people, it removes that or it tries to remove that thing that God has built into creation, there's a compounding effect and a snowball effect. And there's consequences for the nation. And those consequences that come for laziness really don't go anywhere. They're just deferred and they're multiplied. Kind of like your car that you haven't had the oil changed in 40,000 miles. You just ignore that light and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you say, well, the car's still running. It's running after 6,000 miles. It's running after 8,000 miles. It's running after 10,000 miles. It's running after 15,000 miles. It's running after 20,000 miles. It's running after 30,000 miles. Well, eventually it's not going to be running. There's a consequence for laziness. Number 11, this is a big one. Poverty itself is not noble. And wealth itself is not immoral. And this is what I'm telling you here. The Bible has a very nuanced view of money and wealth and poverty. It's very balanced and it's very nuanced and it's complex. It's not simple. And there's enough material in the scriptures about money and wealth and poverty that people on all sorts of the uh, positions on the political spectrum can pull one or two things and say, well, the Bible says this, as if it's the only thing that the Bible says about wealth or poverty. The Bible actually has a lot to say about wealth or poverty. The Bible is pretty clear that God has a heart for the poor. He cares about them. And he wants his people to care about them, not to be indifferent to them. And in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there's plenty of verses and principles and truths to suggest that we ought to be thinking as God's people of ways that we can help the poor not to be poor. You have to be wise in that. Because sometimes what you're doing is simply removing the consequences of laziness, deferring the consequences of laziness. So this is a complex issue. It's not a simplistic issue with a simplistic answer. The same is true of wealth. In the United States, we idolize wealth. We think it will make us uh, fit in with a certain identity. It will give us a certain level of security. Uh, it will give us a certain level of happiness and joy. The Bible says it will do none of those things. It cannot provide you with security in the ultimate sense. But that doesn't mean that the Bible says having money is terrible, it's bad, or it's sinful. In fact, the preacher says money answers everything. When your transmission blows, it's nice to have some money in the bank to buy a new one. If you live in Odessa, Texas, and you like air conditioning in the summer, it's good to have some extra money in the bank in case yours goes out and you can get a new one. Money answers everything. Does that mean we should idolize money and put our hope in money? No. It's just one piece of what the Bible is saying about money. 
and it's a complex conversation. One last cultural observation. You live in a time and a place where there is a growing undercurrent of belief that may soon be the main current, not just an undercurrent. And this way of thinking says, if you have money, it's because you took it from somebody else. And you have it, and you shouldn't have it. And there are people who don't have it. Remember Thomas Sowell and the disparities, the inequalities? There are inequalities, there are disparities. But this simplistic way of looking at things says, if you have money, it's because you hurt someone else to get it. And it should be the government's job to take it from you and give it to somebody else so that there is equity and outcome. And I just want you to understand, that is a very childish, simplistic way of thinking about money and wealth and poverty. And I'm telling you, the biblical view is actually a much more grown-up view, adult view, nuanced view, complex view that recognizes there are disparities. We should care about the poor. We should care about them enough to sacrifice our own buying power to help them. But just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're cursed by God. Just because somebody's rich doesn't mean that they've hurt someone to get it. The biblical view is more complex than this. Poverty itself is not noble. Wealth itself is not immoral. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. Last truth. We should be careful with our words. You've probably grown up hearing people say, a little birdie told me something. Well, that's from the Bible, sort of. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. In your bedroom, don't curse the rich. A bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. I'd love to tell you that that's a prophecy about Twitter and that if you post something online, you have no idea where it's going to go. I don't think it's about Twitter, but I think there's application to social media. I think there's application to say when words leave your mouth, the Bible says they're like arrows and you pull that string back and you turn it loose and that arrow goes and there's no pulling it back. It's gone. That's true with spoken words. That's true with words that you text or email. Whatever you type in a message is one screenshot away from being given to somebody that you didn't think would see it. Whatever you post online for your friends is one share away from somebody else seeing it who might be hurt by whatever it is that you said. So we should be careful with our words. Words we say, words we text, we type, we post. So, let's circle back, look at the big idea. The people of God desperately need wisdom in their brief lives under the sun. The preacher's given us at least 12 pieces of wisdom that will help us in our lives under the sun. But notice what we said first. Wisdom will not erase sin or the effects of the fall. So when we think about concluding this passage and applying this passage, I think there's two ways we could do it. One way... It's the easy way, I'll be honest with you, it's the lazy way. Is just to say, here's 12 pieces of wisdom. Grade yourself, how are you doing? You ought to try to do better. Think, the, think this way, talk this way, do this, work this way. Uh, think about your voting and your politics and all of these things. 
and just go out and try to do better. Maybe you haven't done so good on some of these and try to improve. Now, we want to be wise. We need wisdom. We want to listen to the Word of God. But ultimately, the Christian faith is not a do-better religion. It's not a faith where we say, okay, God, pick us up, dust us off. We're going to really get it this time. And we're going to earn our way. We're going to be wiser. We're going to be better. We're going to be more moral. That's not how biblical religion, that's not how the Christian faith works. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of something we've talked about almost every week. Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible, and it's not the last book in the Bible. And so when you read a passage like this with all of this wisdom, it's really helpful to step back and think, not only how does Ecclesiastes 10 fit into the book of Ecclesiastes, but how does Ecclesiastes 10 fit into the whole Bible? And that's what we're going to do with our conclusion. So a couple of thoughts for your consideration. We live in a fallen, cursed world, and human wisdom cannot restore our dominion. All the wisdom in the world cannot and will not change the fact that you're a sinner. And it won't change what happened in Genesis 3 where Adam sinned and the ones who were given dominion over the world abdicated that dominion and fell into sin and rebellion and brought a curse on creation. Being a wise person is not going to change that. In fact, some of the pieces of wisdom we talked about in Ecclesiastes 10 are specifically related to the fact that, you know what? Sometimes fools end up in power. And sometimes everything's upside down. And sometimes there's just not much you can do about any of it. So we live in a fallen, cursed world. Human wisdom cannot restore our dominion. You know what else Ecclesiastes would say to us? Being a wise person does not change the fact that your life is hebel and that you are under the sun, you're on the clock, and you're racing towards judgment. In fact, multiple times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, the fool and the wise, they're both going to die. Exactly the same. That's just the reality. Second, wisdom and morality do remain embedded into the creation order. We've talked about this. Proverbs talks about how God has built wisdom into the world. Romans 2 says God has actually written His law on the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. And that people instinctively, intuitively understand that there is a God and there is a right and there is a wrong. Now they suppress that and they break God's law and they violate His commandments and His, His principles. But these things are embedded in the creation order. Which is why as we've gone through Ecclesiastes and we've talked about all this wisdom, there's so many songs by non-Christian people that sing about truths from Ecclesiastes. Because these things are embedded in life and ultimately you can't get away from them. You can live against the grain. You can swim against the current. But you can't get away from the current. You can't get away from how God has created the world to work. Number three, God's grace is greater than our sin and our folly. God's grace can change things. I just want to read a few verses from Romans chapter 5. Put these on the screen if you don't want to turn there. Romans 5, 
18. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, great grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to read that verse to you to simply remind you that Ecclesiastes 10 and all the wisdom it offers you is not offering you a means of salvation. You've got to back up and you've got to put it in the context of the whole Bible and you've got to say everything went wrong in Genesis 3 and the sin of one man led to condemnation for the human race. We live in a fallen, cursed world. Part of the reason we need wisdom because we live in a fallen, cursed world. And the way that that fallen, cursed world will be saved, the way that sinful people will be saved, is not by accumulating enough wisdom, passing a wisdom exam, but it's through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one act of obedience where grace abounds to God's people so that they might have eternal life. So that brings us to the last truth. God's grace is revealed to mankind. How do we know about it? How do we find out about it? Well, it's revealed to us in a way that confounds the wisdom of the world. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 1. God in His providence did not determine that we would be saved through wisdom or that we would be saved according to our own power, but through the folly of Jesus Christ crucified. Father, we're grateful for the book of Ecclesiastes. We're grateful for wisdom. Lord, we desperately need it. We pray that you would make us wise in our thinking, in our living, in our families, in our church, in our nation. Father, we pray that these truths would be evident in our lives and would be real in our lives. And even as we pray that, we know that we're sinful people, left to ourselves, we're foolish people. We're under condemnation apart from your grace, and so we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, especially this week as we think about Good Friday and we think about Quiet Saturday and we think about Resurrection Sunday. We thank you uh, that you've gone to the greatest lengths to save us and to make us your people. And you've done it through uh, something that the world views as weak, something that the world views as foolish, uh, and something that the world doesn't quite understand. It's the preaching of the gospel message, and uh, we're thankful that the gospel message is to us the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. So Lord, we do pray that you would make us wise and not foolish, but ultimately we thank you for your wisdom revealed in the Lord Jesus and the hope that that brings to us. Father, be with us as we leave this place uh, and as we look forward to gathering together uh, this Easter Sunday. Be honored in our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.